1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl
0: Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast Stories Behind the Story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Anthony Lowenstein, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is a subject close to my heart, not the the exact subject of the book. I mean, that's something new to me. But I want to start with when I was in high school, and I think it was year 10, we started the Holocaust, Um, and I remember being so shaken by it and so upset, and I remember going home and having some real cries about the persecution of the Jewish people, the, the horrendous nature of what happened, but the biggest memory of it was where was everybody? Why did we let that, as a global um, community, how did we let something like that happen? It was such a naive thought, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because I mean, what's look what's happening now in so many so parts. many places. I mean, obviously
2: yeah. after the Holocaust, and I'm saying this as someone who's Jewish, a lot of my family was killed in the Holocaust. Terrible. My family came from Germany and Austria. Some got out in '39 and came to Australia and elsewhere. Mm. Essentially any country that would take Jews and many mm. did not for a variety mm. of reasons, often anti-Semitism. And after the Holocaust, the view was never again. This is mm. what Jews and the world, so to speak, said. But that was always bollocks, frankly. Because, Wasn't it? Because in so many places around the world, as you say, in the last... God, even 20, 30 years. There's been genocides in Rwanda. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a quasi-genocide going on in the Congo now. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying no one cares. Some people care. Mm. Um, but I think in some conflicts, there's often I see a hierarchy of who is seen as important.
0: Mm.
2: I think mean, you see that partly with the war in Ukraine, which is horrible. And horrible. And what Russia's doing is horrific. However, the way much of Europe... Regards Ukrainian Christians is very different to how they often regard, say, Iraqis or Afghans or Syrians, who are mostly Muslim, Mm. and brown skin. Mm. And they're all human, and yet Mm. there's a hierarchy of who's deemed important and we're allowed to have those people in our borders. And again, I think Ukrainians should be supported, don't get me wrong. Mm. But there is, I think, that hierarchy, which is very problematic and not really getting better.
0: No, no. Let me just say the book's called The Palestine Laboratory and it is just shocking on so many levels. But just to give our listeners a perspective early on, this isn't the first book that you've written about Palestine. Talk to me about that.
2: So I did my first book in 2006 called My Israel Question. Some listeners may have heard about it or have read it. And that caused this crazy storm uh, the short version was I was 20 years ago, so I'm now nearly 50, so in my late 20s. I was, um, I'd grown up in a Jewish home in Melbourne. I had been given this belief, which was pretty common in the Jewish community then and now, that Israel's to be supported because mm. of what happened to Jews in the Holocaust. Mm. That always, for a variety of reasons, made me a bit uncomfortable. I don't talk about that in depth in the book, but I do in my Israel question, that there was this uncritical view that. Jews were the the so-called chosen people, Palestinians were kind of interlopers, so the Mm. argument went in Palestine, and how Israel was behaving towards Palestinians was somehow acceptable because Jews were the chosen people. So the book came out in 2006, there were attempts to get the book banned, there were politicians trying to censor Mm. it, it was just crazy. But there was also a lot of support. The book became a bestseller, which was obviously lovely as a writer. But beyond that, I'd spent time the year before in 2005. That was my first visit to Palestine. And I was mm. pretty shocked by what yeah. I saw because what I felt was then and now, this is being done in my name. Israel mm. claims to speak for all Jews. I mean, not that all Jews accept that, and I don't.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm sure many But,
2: many, but Israel and Netanyahu, yeah. who's the current yeah. prime minister and God. prime ministers you know, before – often say, you know, we represent the Jewish people and Mm. there's an occupation of Palestine that's been going on for over half a century. It's the longest occupation of modern times with no end in sight. In fact, it's arguably getting worse and more permanent. And so I visited Palestine pretty much every four years since the last 20 years, Israel, the West Bank and Gaza as a journalist. And then between 2016 and 2020, I lived with my partner and young child in East Jerusalem reporting. She was there working for an NGO. And that's, I guess, to some extent when the research for this book began. But the ideas behind it are issues that I'd thought about for a long time. And I think in some ways I wanted to do a book that wasn't just the so-called normal book on Palestine – not, not that I'm belittling some of those books which talk about the conflict mm. and the horrible
0: stuff the, that's going on, really but it's I want saying more than persecution and genocide of another race. I mean, you know, it, it, and this is I know this sounds simplistic, but sometimes when I'm trying to explain it to people, I say to them, "It is just like we have lived in Australia for twenty, thirty years, me or other people, hundreds of years, and then somebody decides it's not Australia anymore; it's China." It is as simple as that, isn't it?
2: Look, what's happening in Palestine now is, I think for many listeners who haven't been there, is sort of hard to imagine in a way. Mm-hmm. It's not North Korea. Mm-hmm. It's not at that level of insanity. But but, what's happening in the West Bank, and just so listeners understand, there are roughly five to six million Palestinians under occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. And they've been under occupation now for more than half a century, Mm -hmm. as I said. And what the book tries to do and what I explain in my other work is that over decades and decades, Israel has been able to develop various forms of technology and tools to maintain that occupation. That means things like spyware, um, so-called smart walls, the tools of repression, essentially. Mm -hmm. And in their perspective, very successfully, the occupation is pretty permanent. It's arguably getting very little international pushback. There are people on the left who are opposing what's happening, but politically speaking, the US, the EU, Australia... They're pretty much 110% supported, even though now and then there might be a critical press release. And what I try to say in the book is this conflict is not just happening in Palestine. Yes, the occupation is horrific in Palestine, but this is something which is increasingly exported. Mm. So the tools and technologies... That's the, like, that's the point, right? And I think in the 21st century, as I try to show in the book, that two things, I suppose, I try to both report and analyse in the book, that one... I do fear that we are moving into a century of more and more nations that embrace ethno-nationalism, essentially meaning that a country or a population wants to prioritise one people or race over another. So look at, for example, Japan. what's happening in, in India with, yeah. uh, with Hindu fundamentalism under Modi, which is disturbing and getting worse. And Israel, of course, it's Jewish yeah. supremacy. Can I
0: just say, you know why I said Japan? Because they call that a monoculture, as you know. Mm. But it's not sustainable. See, well, well, the
2: birth rates are, are diving, so there's that, isn't there?
0: There is. And businesses, you know, that <laughs> mm-hmm. country's not flourishing because that kind of thinking and that kind of uh, government's not clearly not working.
2: But Israel would say um, we are thriving. Now, yes, a lot of listeners may, if they follow the news, well, they've followed in the last months, there's been lots of mass protests about certain things the far-right government there is trying to the do. The judicial
0: system. Exactly. Yeah. but. Yeah.
2: The truth is that what Israel is now increasingly selling to the world and they advertise it as battle-tested. So there are companies that are saying, we've tested Weapon X in Gaza. It Mm -hmm. was super effective. I mean, I've seen the advertising. The book hasn't got photos, but people can find this stuff Mm -hmm. online. That it's seen to be effective, so to speak. And the argument there for these countries are told, you can do this with your own unwanted population. If you mm. want to go after your minorities, your dissidents, mm. your human rights workers, whoever it may be, and it's impossible to know exactly how many countries have bought this kind of stuff. But my research suggests at least one hundred and thirty. Now, one hundred and thirty out of the world popu- country population of roughly two or two hundred and ten—it's a majority. Democracies and dictatorships, including here, Australia. So. I suppose I see this book as partly, obviously, investigative work as a journalist, but also as a warning to say to people, if you worry about where this kind of repression is going, this is increasingly a model of how it's being sold to the world.
0: Mm. What is it that you discovered early on that made you think that there's a book in this? Um, And there's a couple of questions here. And do you ever fear for what could happen? You mean
2: to me personally or to to Palestinians? To me
0: to you personally, uh, let me
2: ask, answer the second question yeah. first. I mean, the short answer is, one doesn't want to be. How do I put this um, politely? I think in Australia, in general, with a few notable exceptions, journalists are not physically attacked. We're not killed. No, we're but not kidnapped.
0: you go over to Israel. I do
2: go over to Palestine, Israel, and many other places. That, um, I've been to Afghanistan and a number of other war zones for work. One of the things, in fact, I have a, a big piece in The Good Weekend coming out shortly, which listeners can read soon, which talks partly about that personal journey, about the, the, and I don't mean this to be a victim by any means, but the personal price one does pay, the hate mail, the death threats, the horrible stuff mm-hmm. you get, and it doesn't stop me doing it, not because I'm some wonderful, brave guy, but because I think, I see it as a as a Jewish person, although I'm very secular, I'm not religious, my kids are, you know, we don't practice our religion at all, I see it as a, as a moral responsibility that if this is being done in my name, this being mm. repression, occupation mm. and horrible abuse... I feel like it's my responsibility as a Jew. And there are growing numbers of Jews who are also standing up. You know, I'm, I'm generalising here, but for many, many decades, it was hard to find many critical Jews on this issue. They always existed, of course. I was not by any means the they first one. They just don't
0: have a voice.
2: But that's it is changing. In the US, well, you see that much more, yeah. that there is a growing civil war of sorts in the Jewish community in America. The short version of that is many young Jews are disgusted with what what Israel is doing and they don't want to support it. Mm. They are upset that their parents and grandparents expect them somehow to support Israel because of the Holocaust, because of history, whatever it may be. And the impact of that politically is very interesting. At the moment, it's not changing policy by Joe Biden, to be sure. But the Democratic Party, which is currently in power and may well win in 24, I guess we'll have to wait and see, At some point in the coming years, that's going to cause massive problems with that party because there was the recent polling this year, which finds the majority of Democratic voters are now more sympathetic to Palestinians than Israelis. And that's not reflected in the party's political position, Biden and others. So to answer your second question briefly, so I, when I was living there in Palestine, it was something that I started seeing a few more articles appearing and seeing also myself just this incredible amount of surveillance cameras, facial recognition, and this is directed principally at Palestinians, not at Jews such as myself. And there are a few articles and a few books that touched on this idea of Palestine as a model, as a laboratory of repression, that it is not just a question of what's happening here stays here, it's do you about know, saying do you that know, I'm just has, going to
0: interrupt. Yeah, you sure. There, because that is most like the cycle of abuse.
2: It's the absolute and I'm not a psychologist, thankfully, but it's a complete cycle of abuse. Now, I, I just to be clear to put this on the record just for listeners, I don't argue or think and I've never said that what Israel's doing to the Palestinians is like what the no. Germans did to the Jews, just to be very clear about that, it's not. However, however, there's no doubt that the people often or individuals who are abused themselves often go on to abuse others.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and we know that.
2: Exactly, which happens everything from sexual mm-hmm. abuse to yeah. rape to you know, yeah, any other
0: violence. domestic
2: violence, not yeah. uncommon. And there's no reason why it can't happen to a people mm-hmm. as well. One of the things I guess I try to look at in the book by going through a range of examples, and some listeners will be aware of things like um, phone hacking tools, Pegasus, mm-hmm. It's been in the media the last few years. So these days, the technology is so good, devised by Israel and then often tested in Palestine by people who worked in the Israeli military, and then it's gone on to be sold to dozens of other countries, is you will never know anymore if your phone is being hacked or surveilled. So back in the day, people you know used to see films of that kind of click-clicking sound you know, when it's analog phones. These days, you wouldn't know. And the reason that's important is that increasingly this technology, and there are many other Israeli firms that are doing it, not just um, NSO Group, which does Pegasus, is that it's used by countless countries to surveil their own dissidents, their own human rights workers. And if you found out, if you were a journalist in Mexico, in Colombia, in places where your life literally is at in jeopardy, if you realise that your contacts, your photos are all in the hands of the state... It literally has, as I say in the book, killed countless people. Now the tool itself doesn't kill the person, but the information that's on that phone does.
0: What yeah. about that guy, the journalist, um, that was on a flight with his girlfriend, and they went over Belarus, and they brought them down. They brought the plane down. The person was was taken in, and he and his girlfriend never never mm. to be seen. And that is just—he was a journalist and writing. Stories and well pieces that they didn't want to hear absolutely,
2: I mean, one of the there's often been for years a war on journalists, but what's happened in the last oh, ten God. years
0: donald trump is
2: well donald trump obviously is a is a oh. is a key player in some extent in not so much actions as much as rhetoric, not that I'm mm. defending his actions, but there are many other countries that almost got emboldened by the rhetoric and actions of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. But just to be clear, at the moment, this is one short example, the Biden administration is still prosecuting Julian Assange, Mm -hmm. the head of WikiLeaks. Um, He's in a UK You know, prison. the
0: Americans, because I spend a bit of time in the US, I spend about three or four months every year, they really have a different view on Julian Alsange. Look, Assange
2: instrument. is, for some people, very controversial. I'm aware of that, and obviously I haven't got the time yeah. to go into all those details. But the truth of the matter is, and I've been an uh, advocate of WikiLeaks since it founded uh, in 2006, and I'm often publicly very critical and done a lot of reporting about what's happening to him now. One can have issues with his personality or his background, which has, but that has nothing to do with what's going on here. Mm-hmm. He's being prosecuted by the US with the acquiescence of Australia and the UK for publishing legitimate information about US war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. That's the issue at hand. So mm-hmm. when you have Australia and America and the UK talking about our commitment to freedom of the press, you say, okay, that's lovely. But But how about someone like Julian Assange and others, Mm. I might add? Mm. So again, that has no direct relation to Israel per se, but Israel does routinely arrest, surveil, uh, Palestinian journalists that routinely, in fact, a year ago, pretty much to the day in May, uh, one of Palestine's most prominent journalists, Shirin Abu Akleh, was murdered by Israeli forces in Janine.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, there's been no accountability for that. And there's
0: they said it was an accident. An
2: accident. Well, yeah, first right. they blamed Palestinians for it, yeah. which was nonsense. Yeah. So that got a lot of attention because she was a prominent mm. journalist in the in the Arab world. But in some extent, I think there is a can I put this, there's almost like a belief that although a lot of countries don't say this explicitly, they like what Israel's doing because they want to copy it themselves. So this is where it comes down to the idea of Palestine being a model and a laboratory. Now again, there's obviously huge amounts of repression elsewhere in the world. What, for example, the Chinese are doing to their own people is not mm-hmm. because of China or what India's doing, not directly because of China, so because of Israel. But as I say in the book, Extensively. There is interestingly a growing relationship between, say, Israel and India. India is now the world's biggest country. It's overtaken China population wise. It is friendly with the US and Australia as some way to be against Beijing and its ambitions. What India is doing is often, and they acknowledge this, is inspired by what Israel's doing. They openly say, Indian officials, it's in the book, people can Google this, that we like what Israel's doing in the West Mm. Bank. What they're trying to do in Kashmir is mimicking what Israel's doing in the West Bank. So again, what India's doing is not solely because of Israeli actions in Palestine, but they're inspired by And also, I think, just finally, because they believe they can get away with it. This is the point. Mm. When you're a country like Israel, which has complete international impunity... Mm. Why would you stop? Mm. Putting aside the moral <laughs> reasons why you would. Do
0: you know, I often say, and, and, and again, I think this is really simplistic, but it's something worth thinking about. I often think about MAGA or, you know, extreme right-wing people, that if, let's say, okay, you can have everything you want, right? How does that look? To whom? How, to them. Like, how does that look? Like, you are
2: authoritarian, does... pretty good.
0: But how does it look day to day? How do you do that? How do you get there?
2: Well, I suppose it depends, obviously, what that definition is. But in the US, for example, I just saw in the last days, Trump uh, has again said that he pledged if he wins in 24, he would shut down Muslim immigration to the US. That's what Mm. it looks like. It looks like a mm. shrinking space for civil society in America, of course, a massive expansion mm. of gun rights, as if they have, you know, not enough massive problems with guns now. Well,
0: I mean, you know, they are killing themselves at the moment, yeah. so, yeah. Madly. <laughs> Madly. Um,
2: but I do think that the issue of, and this, the book only touches on this in part, is that Israel, I think, is seen as a country that inspires others, and also, I think, um, it makes a lot of people fearful because of what happened in the Holocaust, mm. that... There is this sense, I think, that many countries, and I talk about this in the book, including Germany, and I'm a German citizen along with being an Australian citizen, that a lot of countries, they don't really feel comfortable criticizing Israel because of what happened in the Holocaust. Now, obviously, what happened in Israel-Palestine was after the Holocaust. Israel was founded in 1948. But I think there is a sense of, I don't know if it's guilt or this belief you have to defer to Israel because... I don't want to be accused of anti-Semitism, so the argument goes. And for sure, anti-Semitism is rising, which is a problem, and it's something I often um, campaign against, of course. But we have to, I think, understand that a lot of actions that Israel commits in Palestine has an impact of how people view Jews and Israel. How can it – doesn't justify anti-Semitism. But it's well, like this saying this is you know, the
0: thing, and also, too, you know, you've got to be so careful. I said to you before I started recording, people are very surprised that I'm talking to you today, and a lot of people advise me against it, and you don't want to be seen as anti-Semitic. No. Why can't we just have a conversation? Hmm. You know? Well, I agree. It, yeah. I I, I,
2: obviously, do. I agree. Obviously, that's I why agree. Of course, well, I'm here, and that's <laughs> why I write the book. But, no, I think there is this – It's both the silencing that goes on to whoever these people were, friends, colleagues, whoever you were talking to, were probably worried that you'd be accused of anti-Semitism simply for being critical of Israel. But I think in some ways, obviously I'd say this, that's misguided because as Israel itself becomes more extreme, there is a far-right government in Israel which currently and openly advocates ethnic cleansing. It's not what? like it's my opinion. That's literally what elements of government well, that government they want to ethnically cleanse Palestinians.
0: That Itmar Ben, how do you pronounce his um,
2: Itmar Ben-Gavir.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, he was in a terrorist organisation. And now he's one of the he's people He's a running. senior
2: minister in the government and a lot of people will say, well, he doesn't represent all Israelis. Well, obviously not every Israeli agrees of with course. him. They don't. Of but course. the fact is that those views, many opinion polls in Israel show that the younger Israeli Jews are becoming far more right-wing, not less. So, again, this is the comparison often that I make. White South Africans didn't wake up one day and go, gee, this apartheid's pretty awful, isn't it? It didn't happen. It didn't end for that reason. It ended for a range of reasons, but partly because there was international, eventually, pressure that said, you guys have a choice. You can either continue being an apartheid state or you're going to be this isolated little rump that Mm. goes nowhere. And in the end, I mean, South Africa today is a a country with a lot of problems, to Mm. be sure. And it's economic apartheid now, again, to be sure. But the reality is that, and again, it's not just me saying it, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Mm. virtually all Israeli human rights organisations, Palestinian human rights organisations, all say Israel is an apartheid state. Mm. I agree with that, but that's not me saying it. So eventually, and I think this is growing, there will be a, a reckoning of sorts of how Israel continues to operate and as someone who advocates for example sanctions and boycotts just like what happened is peaceful legitimate protest against a state that commits abuses. That's not unique to Israel. A lot of states commit abuses. Mm. Of course mm. they do. And I've spent no, well, a lot of my life journalistically about, going to Afghanistan or Honduras or a lot of other places. Well,
0: you don't have to go far to look at the More stolen Or Australia, gin. for that matter. <laughs> yes, or refugees. Stole, how we, yes. Australia still puts refugees, refugees on Manus or on the right. You don't have to go very far. Mm. I want to talk about one of the chapters in your book um, that you talk about where you say September it'll the 11th, was good for business. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. controversial, don't you think? Well,
2: yes, but true. And the reason it's true is, and the book goes into detail, of course, is a lot of Israeli companies and the government were really keen to maximise the Western obsession with terrorism and not obviously... An anti-Arab. An anti-Arab sentiment, anti-Muslim sentiment. They'd been spending years before 9-11 already fighting their own war on terror and I would argue in a very misguided and racist way, but that would be against, say, the people of Lebanon and the the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, which was a catastrophe and there were various human rights abuses committed and war crimes by Israeli-backed forces in Lebanon in 1982 and elsewhere. But September 11th became good for business because a lot of these companies, and it's not like it was a secret, they openly said, we know how to fight terrorism. If you, as a country, as a company, come to us, we will help you fight what they would regard as a, a scourge of terrorism. And a lot of Israeli companies, their profit margins went through the roof. But again, the the laboratory for those tools and technologies was always Palestine. Mm-hmm. It was what, was what the Palestinians were going through on a daily basis. So just, in fact, this month in May, uh, Amnesty International released a new report explaining how facial recognition technology, which many countries use, but it's used to massively surveil and control Palestinians in the West Bank especially. And that technology, as I explain in the book, is then exported around Mm. the world to many Mm. other countries that want to do similar things. So, yeah, 9-11 was a horrific event, but it was also seen, and it wasn't just Israel, it was a lot of American and Western companies who were keen to monetize a war on terror. I mean, look at the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, both complete disasters, and yet a lot of people made a lot of money out of those wars.
0: I'm even thinking about just how it was good for Israel just in terms of sentiment, you know. Absolutely. yeah.
2: Yes, a lot of people, and I think Israel was already Mm. using this rhetoric, and I say in the book in the introduction how the rhetoric around the war on terror that the Mm. US deployed both Bush and, frankly, it's Mm. continuing now for 20-plus years, was the Israeli playbook. Mm-hmm. It was the same language of demonization, mm. of harassment, of mass detention, of all these horrible acts... Mm. That Israel had been doing, frankly, for years before. And in fact, as I explained in the book, there's lots of connections between what the US did post 9 11. They saw the U- Israel as a model. I mean, they, a lot of US officials said it. I mean, it wasn't the secret. But then you sort of ask, sorry, so what exactly is the model? The model is, because we often get told, well, you know, the West and Israel, we have shared values. Mm. Sorry, mm. what are those values again? You know, values of what? Occupation, occupation. Yeah. What are those values? Ones, yeah. And that goes back to what we said before about that there is, I think, this belief that we're, it's easy for us to go and say what China's doing is horrible to its own people, which mm. it is. Mm. But it's more difficult to say it about our own friends and allies, of which mm. Israel, of course, is a key country. Mm. And as I say in the book, at the moment, in the last sort of four or five years, there's been this massive turn that for years, the US was happy to, in fact, partner with China to work on so-called counterterrorism, and the evidence that's overwhelming. Now China, rightly or wrongly, is seen, in my view wrongly, as the, the evil nation in the world. Not that I defeat Chinese mm-hmm. actions, but I think it's creating a dangerous Cold War. Mm-hmm. And yet Israel has supported far more repression for far longer. Mm-hmm. Far more countries, mm-hmm. technology, tools, training, Mm-hmm. And yet mostly we don't talk about that mm-hmm. because it's okay to talk about Chinese repression, but Israeli repression, well, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Is it?
0: Mm-hmm. I was at a dinner around um, September the 11th, post, post, that would have been weeks or months later. And somebody asked me how I felt about my people
2: Kill killing people up, meaning
0: Lebanese people. How or well, Muslim Arabs really. Right. They probably just down to that. Yeah. Um, and how do I feel about my people killing other people, innocent other people? It's like, wow, at that point <laughs> I put my cutlery down and I got up and I left. And I just thought that's the perception. That's what they got around a massive that time. Perception.
2: And I like to think in some circles that's changed, but I think in many ways. Mm. I don't think it's changed as much maybe as we like to as think we, or maybe we want.
0: Do you think the loss of a leader, Arafat, has really set back the Palestinians? Look, like, la- they haven't had anybody with the same charisma and the same no. leadership qualities. Look, since, Arafat
2: so. was, is a complicated figure, which we haven't got time to yes. go into. But, I mean, the short version was, yes, he put Palestine on the map, but also he was a deeply corrupt man who mm. um, established an authoritarian mm sort of space within Palestine. Mm. So his legacy is very mixed, although if you travel around Palestine, he's seen these days as a bit of a hero. Mm. Look, you're right, the Palestinian leadership both in Gaza and the West Bank has been disastrous. It's authoritarian in There's Gaza. No... It's, it's Islamist. It's very repressive against women. Nothing that I support at mm. all. I mean, I've spent time in the West Bank and Gaza, and I wouldn't want to live under those conditions, not just as a Jew but as a person, for mm. sure. But also let's not forget... Many of those leaders are exactly what Israel and the West want, mm. Mm. because it's it's much more convenient mm. to have a compliant dictator mm. than an unpredictable democracy. Mm. So it's why, since World War II, you see the US and Israel backing many, many, many states that are largely repressive, because it's much easier to back those kinds of states than the idea of people voting in elections. Mm. You don't know what you're going to get. You mm. might get someone who doesn't like you or doesn't want your support, and... You're right. The Palestinians have had a number of leaders in the last decades, many of whom have been killed or imprisoned by Israel. Mm. I think we often think about this in the context, I guess, of South Africa. People say, well, where is the Mandela figure? Where Mm. is the, I guess, in the white perspective, where is the de Klerk figure in South Africa Mm. to bring them together? I think you do need strong leaders to bring people together. But at the same time, the conflict in Palestine is reached such a stage now where it's far, um, it's far, it, you know, it's impossible now to simply say, let's put everyone just in the room together and see if they can work it out. Mm. We're, we're long past that now. The, the parent oh, balance is so what different. Is there,
0: wasn't it Trump's son-in-law that said he worked it out?
2: Yeah, it's worked out well, yeah. Well, and he's made he a lot of money uh, <laughs> since that. Uh, good old Jared Kushner. Yeah, yeah, yeah he it's... just
0: had an hour's meeting and I think it was all sorted. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's yes. resolved now. Yeah, so yeah, his course. job is well done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such a statesman. Yeah. Um, Tell me, where do you think, where do you think, it will it end? Will it end in our lifetime?
2: Well, often I wonder if it'll end in my child's lifetime and they're wow. quite young now. But yeah. look, I i mean, the, the, before I answer that, look, I think, yes, of course, any, no conflict is forever.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yes.
2: But the fear, so it's not really a solution, this is more where the, the fear is that there is a growing constituency in Israel, talking about Israeli Jews, not just in the current government but including polling of Israeli Jews that advocate ethnic cleansing. I'm talking about Mm. the forced removal of millions of Palestinians. Now, that might might not happen tomorrow, but all it needs is a trigger, Mm. a war, something unpredictable, Mm. some action we can't really predict today. Mm. And what that leads to is what Israel has always wanted to do since its beginning was to remove as many Arabs from its borders as possible, Mm. to have essentially a Jewish state, which is, of course, what it is now, but discriminates against anyone who's not Jewish, which is the primary reason as a Jew I can't support a state that is like that. But the fear is that if that potentially happens... What would the world actually do? Mm-hmm. Would, say, the US oppose it? Would the Arab countries, which are increasingly in bed with Israel? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, those Palestinians have to go somewhere, so they'd mm-hmm. have to go to Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt. where those so countries many accept them? Um, you know, exactly.
0: Uh, Lebanon is like, is it one, first, or second um, in the world in terms of taking refugees Pal- in? Indeed. And they would be Palestinian. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. So, look. Uh, Such a small country. Indeed, and it's, Mm. as you'd know better than me, struggling horrendously at the moment. So, I mean, the fear is that is basically a real, I think that is a real possibility. Mm. And I fear that much of the world wouldn't do much about it. Really? Well, what would they do? I mean, you can think of lots of other conflicts around the world where there's been mass movement of people under the barrel of a gun and what have they done? Mm. Now, I mean, one never knows exactly how it's going to play out and who's leader Mm. at the time and these things are are, are are a puzzle, but that's to me the the worst case scenario, which I think is becoming much more likely. And I say I base it not on my opinion, but what public opinion in Israel is moving towards. Mm. The better case scenario is, at some point, there is a degree of a negotiated agreement. There is a, I think, there would need to be some kind of truth commission, which is what happened in South Africa mm. in the nineties. Doesn't solve every problem, but at least it is. Uh, the variety of crimes that have been happening in the last 70-plus years. My view is there should be a one-state solution. Again, it's not my decision, but one state where everyone lives peacefully. I'm not, I don't believe in utopia, so of course there would be issues and there's history and there's grievances. All that has to be worked out. But there are examples of countries... Northern Ireland, which, again, is not a perfect scenario by any means, but it's far better than it was 50 years ago. South Africa is a mess, but I would argue in still much better shape than it was when it was under brutal apartheid. There are models for that, but, again, it needs the will. Mm -hmm. It needs enough of the international community to raise their voice Mm -hmm. and not just raise their voice but put pressure on the most powerful actor here, which is Israel. Mm -hmm. And I think also a lot of it, and this, I think, is changing, in a more positive way, is it's about seeing Palestinians as human beings, which is, seems like an obvious thing to oh, say. It's,
0: it's a ridiculous thing to but say. But I think but a lot of true.
2: people, and I'm yeah. not just saying in in, my, in the Jewish community, sadly, but in the wider community, again, particularly since 9-11, do see Arabs in general as sort of distrustful mm. mm-hmm. Terrorist loving. You know,
0: people always ask me, oh, yeah, but you must be, are you Muslim or is you Christian? Like, as if that has anything to do with it. Yeah. You know, and that's how they judge people about yes. either or. Yes. I mean, that's, that sentiment is. Yeah, is it's here. horrible. And Absolutely. It's, yeah.
2: And of course, but it's also, and I say this as someone Jewish, that there is, I think, a. Presumption and reasonably so that many people just think, well, you're Jewish, therefore you support what Israel's doing. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's important, therefore, to have, which is happening, you see it more in the US than here, but it is happening here, growing numbers of Jews who say, not in my name,
0: mm-hmm. that
2: what's being done in Palestine with this horrible occupation and all these tools of repression, which I talk about in the book, are not what, to me, a, Jew, a Jewish liberal worldview should be. And of mm. course, just finally on that point, I mean, this is what I mentioned and I talk with this in the book. If there is a century of more and more nations embracing an ethno-nationalist view, whether it's Hindus in India or Jews in Israel mm. or wherever it may be, then this is even more urgent mm. to actually make people realise there are models of repression here which are not just being exported, but which are growing in appeal, mm. not just to governments mm. but to also a lot of people who sort of say, I don't want to have for example, Muslims in my world view, I'm talking about Mm. a lot of Hindus in India, have that view now. I mean, it's not me saying that. I mean, there are literally pogroms against Muslims in Mm. India today. Mm. Happens all the time. And there are pogroms in Palestine conducted by Israeli uh, settlers, looked on and backed by the Israeli military. Happened Mm. literally a month ago. Mm. And again, there is, I think, this kind of not just an in inertia but i think for a lot of people a feeling of oh it's a bit too complicated it's been going on for too long That's what right. can we do if we throw our hands up in despair do you but think there are we're ways going to solve it
0: Globally, though, do we think the tolerance of not accepting each other is mind boggling to mm. me because as humans, we all want the same things we want food, shelter, yeah. safety, love. love. That's yes, right. I do. Truly, Look, are we raise going back? Families. Well, I guess it depends
2: compared to what time. I mean, are, are we in better shape than, say, you know, 1939 Germany? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, are we better than, say, you know, 1994 Rwanda? Yes. Mm. Uh, No. I mean, obviously not in Australia, but I mean, those kinds Mm. of ethnic conflicts. I mean, there's a lot of studies which show that in general, in the 20th and early 21st century, less people are generally dying in the world than they have in centuries past. That's generally the case. Of course, you often don't get that sense because Mm. of following the news. Mm. And as a journalist, often we're attracted for better or worse to... I guess, the darker side of humanity. And often the kind of work I've done in the last 20 years has been drawn to that, to try to give a voice to people who often haven't got one. Mm. Palestinians, when well, I mean, they have got a voice, but often not a, enough of a voice. I don't know if we're going backwards, but I feel like there's too often, as a society or as a community, one has to work on this. Mm. Like th- people don't become accepting just mm. because. Mm. And I think a lot of Australians and many in the West Feel like well, that, that only happens over there, yeah, it's wherever there problem. is, yeah. Lebanon, Palestine, yeah. you know, Myanmar, wherever, mm. you know, all those. Mm. There's crazy stuff happening, but it's not happening here. Okay, mm. I mean, you could argue a lot about how white Australia treats black Australia and refugees, and there's all those issues here. I mean, they're mm. not being killed, you know, on, right now in mass numbers, but they like, have they were been. in the past, absolutely. They have been. So, mm. I, I don't feel overly optimistic about humanity, but I'm not. a a, a pessimist that says, you know, we're all doomed next week, which maybe is a bit of a cop-out of an answer. But no, I think it's hard when you do the kind of reporting I've done over lots of years and lots Mm. of places to be entirely optimistic about the state of the world. I think a lot of it is awareness Mm. and making people, almost sort of pushing people to say, this needs to be worked on. We need to be more aware of what is being done often in our name, whether it's Israel in Palestine or a country like Australia, which pretty much uncritically supports what's happening in Palestine, Mm. whether it's Labor or Liberal, doesn't make much of a difference. Mm. Morrison or Albanese on this issue ain't that different. There are slight differences at the edges, to be Mm. sure. But when it comes to issues like Palestine, there's not much of a difference Mm. in many Mm. Western states. People are
0: frightened. They're frightened. I think there is a
2: lot of that. Well, I say it's, I mean, yes. And it's not a
0: popular voting mechanism, really.
2: And people, as you've obviously found yourself, people say, so, you know, don't go to, you know, don't talk yeah. about the Palestine issue. You're going yeah. to be accused of anti-Semitism. Yeah. And I do think, maybe naively, I do think that's actually changing. I know mm. maybe mm. your experience would suggest otherwise, but I do think it is a little mm. bit because I do see a lot of more people speaking about this. Public opinion polls are showing that Mm. in the US and Mm. Australia and parts of Europe and the UK. There's far more, not just sympathy for Palestine, but much more understanding. I'm talking about the wider community putting aside Mm. whether you're Jewish or Palestinian. That's positive. Now, that's often not reflected in the political decisions of Mm. Biden or Albanese or Sunak in the UK, but that is happening. Mm. Mm -mm. And that's often happening, I would argue, not because of the media, but in fact, in spite of it. Mm. And I mean by that, I think social media has played with all its faults and there are many with social media. I think on Palestine, in fact, it's actually been hugely, and I talk about this in the book, lots of censorship of Palestinian voices. So I'm not idealising it, but I think a lot of people in the West are much more aware of what's happening Mm. because of Palestinians in their own voices in Palestine talking about it, Mm. showing it. Instagram, TikTok, whatever it may be, mm. you can't really lie. What's going on there? People see if the people, occupation, the right. violence. I mean, that's what's going on.
0: Have you, Have you watched that little Netflix? Well, it's on Netflix. It's a it's a short film. It's called The Present. Have you seen I have. That?
2: It's about the, basically the checkpoints and the humiliation. Yeah, so in it's Palestine. about
0: yeah, mm. it's about that um, lovely family, and he yes. wants to buy her a fridge. Yes,
2: I'd recommend people to, to watch that. I think Isn't I'm sure it? it's still there. It's very short but very powerful.
0: Yeah, Fatima Buta got me onto that. She she told me about it, and it is just the shortest story, but the saddest story, oh. and it illustrates those big the impact that those decisions make on your day to day life. It's just so beautiful. It yeah. really is. Mm. And it's also,
2: as you rightly say, just goes to the heart of what I think most mm. people don't really, I can't appreciate why this is, that every day that you live, you often can't go where you want. You mm. often can't travel to see an uncle, mm. a father. You have to get permission to a permission to travel down the road. You can't buy a gift for your
0: wife on their own. Yes, I mean, it's,
2: now they, now Israel says, oh, this is for security reasons. It's nonsense. I'm not saying there are, you know, every state has a right to protect itself, fine. Of course. But... This is a situation you're maintaining and deepening repression under the guise of security, mm. where your aim, and I say your aim, as in I think often Israel and Israelis who are serving in the military, are doing it out of, I think it's for a range of reasons. I think it's a lot of racism. mm and I think often Jews often don't like being accused of racism because of what happened to us as Jews. But well, that's what like anyone, I mean, it's the cycle any, of abuse. Exactly. Anyone yeah. can be racist. Anyone can be mm. abusive, regardless of, you know, whatever your history is. And, in fact, in some ways it explains it even more, right? Mm. So people don't really understand the minutiae of what occupation looks like, the, mm. the humiliation at checkpoints by Israeli soldiers, often 18-year-old kids mm. with guns, humiliating Palestinians. I've seen it with my eyes. I used to live in East Jerusalem, as I said, for years, and I would routinely, almost every day, Mm -hmm. see Israeli police humiliating Palestinians just because.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they've got
2: the guns and the Palestinians do not. They just want
0: to pick a fight, yeah.
2: Um, Also, they're bored. And I think that kind of day-to-day humiliation is what makes occupation so corrosive and also...
0: The repression.
2: It's the repression and I think also and I see this in in Israel and I see it in other countries too. If you occupy another people for over half a century your morality collapses. Of
0: course. Your core
2: collapses. You can't not be a morally um, Mm -hmm. broken society and that's what I see in Israel. Um, I mean Palestine for different reasons but in Israel itself because of They've spent so long occupying Palestinians with no end in sight. In fact, it's deepening. There are more settlements being built every Mm. day.
0: Right-wing extremists, exactly. Right-wing
2: extremists in government. It's what impunity brings, but also, it to me, as someone who's Jewish, it is deeply shaming, Mm. particularly because of our history. That this Mm. is what we are doing Mm. to another people who haven't got. Yeah, it's, you know, it's horrific. I know,
0: um, when I drive past some of the Jewish schools in Sydney and they're like prisons, right, the security is just so over the top. Well, they are, but in a way they've got the high walls and they've got the security systems. And I think what kind of world citizen are you that you have to live like that?
2: I mean, obviously, look, Yeah, that's, an, that's a complicated question. I mean, I think many of those schools would say, and I think there is some – Truth in that there are threats, yeah. there are threats against Jewish kids yeah. um, from whoever. Yeah. Now, whether some of the security is all necessary, it's sort of hard to really judge that. But I mean, of course, you also, let's be clear, you don't get that same kind of security at Muslim schools,
0: Absolutely. which often have
2: been threatened in the last 20 years since right. as well. Yeah. But I do think it's probably fair to say that, yes, there are some legitimate threats that mm-hmm. some Jewish kids and students have uh, that governments have been, I would say, far more amenable to than Muslim schools mm. in the last 20 years. There's mm. no doubt that's true.
0: Mm. And a lot really of Muslim
2: don't. friends of mine are pretty upset about that because they sort of say, not that mm. they want to live in a ghetto either, no. but they say that there are legitimate threats against our community and often and the no government one cares. doesn't listen.
0: No, no one cares. Anthony, I forgot to introduce you. <laughs> I think we just, just jump right into conversation. Tell me how you became a journalist.
2: So I've been a journalist now, I guess, for 20 years. I started in 2003. I'm from Melbourne. I moved here for a traineeship, which was then Fairfax, but it's now obviously nine, Sydney Morning Herald Online.
0: So had you always wanted to be a journalist? Well, I
2: was a student. I was editor of the student paper at Monash University in Melbourne. I was co-editor of that in 97 and... Lived in the UK then for a number of years and sort of got there and thought, I'm just going to contact, you know, the Guardian and give me a job, which of Of course course they didn't. (laughs) Like, why would they? Um, Or any other paper for that matter. Exactly. I'm answering. They're like, yeah, thanks, mate. I mean, see you later. So that didn't really work out. But I think I didn't really, I did an arts degree, so I wasn't really trained to do anything. I didn't, and I didn't do a journalism degree. And I think these days, it's funny, I think at times have changed a lot in the last 20 years. These days, a media degree has almost replaced for many people and what was an arts mm. degree. So back then I did arts because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. Mm. And a lot of younger people now will do a media comms, journalism yeah. degree because I'm not sure what else they want to do, which is fine. Mm. But I, didn't, I never studied, I guess, what I'm doing now. Anyway, so I came to Sydney 20 years ago and I was a, a uh, Sydney Morning Herald and online for two years. And how did you get years. that job? Well, I applied once and didn't get it. And basically you apply by submitting some of your work. And I'd written for some local newspapers in Melbourne. And I think the – I can't remember who it was, but someone's looking Though You were pretty close, but basically do more work, yep. essentially, for the following year, which I did, and then I, I got in.
0: And did you say online you got it in? It was like,
2: sitting one had online. Yeah, so the job was 20 online years back, back – Yeah, ago. in 2003. There was the internet <laughs> then. Kids, remember? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, right. it was early days, <laughs> but there was the internet, yes. So it was online then. Um, and – I was there for two years and I've been freelance since 2005. So, Mm. I mean, since then I've either been based here in Sydney or I've written various books. I was based with my partner in South Sudan in 2015, which is pretty extraordinary.
0: Yeah, very.
2: And then Palestine. And over those years, I guess, done a number of documentary films and written nine books. This is my ninth book, amazingly. It's hard to believe that Mm. really. So lots of issues. So I think as people will see if they're interested, they can Google it or see it on my website. But... I guess the the aim has always been to do work that is, whether it's Palestine or Afghanistan, or I've done a I've done a lot of work in my last decade on disaster capitalism, people mm-hmm. making money from misery. Mm-hmm. That could be war, refugees, absolutely mining, whatever it may be around the world. And I think it's often to do work that is not always a great fit in the mainstream. I've kind of that's not always a conscious thing, but you realise very quickly in the media. Twenty years ago and now. There are spaces for critical voices, but there aren't that many. Mm. When I say critical voices, I mean people who are sceptical of official positions, whether it's war and peace or... Well,
0: and people that are talking about subjects that people don't want to talk about.
2: Yes. Palestine, of course, is the main one. So when I was at Fairfax 20 years ago, I had a lot of problems with people. um, There were major complaints from elements in the Jewish community to the Fairfax board. And that's not the reason I left in the end, but... It was a problem because yeah. yeah. I was being, I mean, even then, I look what I was writing 20 odd years ago and it was pretty mild. I wasn't saying anything crazy. I was saying Palestinians are human beings, mm. it's two state solution. I don't believe in that anymore, but two state solution, settlements what made are bad.
0: You
2: change? Reality, mm. I would say. I, mean, gonna, I would argue, I now think, oh, the book doesn't go into detail about this, but I think the reality is that there was never going to be a two-state solution. Mm. I would argue Israel never really wanted there to be one. I think if you have now... They're
0: never going to give up what they have.
2: Well, no. And there's now seven hundred and thousand Israeli Jewish settlers living in the West Bank and Mm. East Jerusalem, all illegally. Mm. You're never going to remove those people. Mm. It's done. So therefore the question is what now happens, Mm. which is why a lot of people increasingly, not so many Israeli Jews but increasing numbers of Palestinians, believe that the only solution is some kind of one-state reality. Now, what that looks like, of course, is up to people there. It's not up to me. I, I did a book a number of years ago called After Zionism, which talked about what that might look like. But I think for me, yeah, as a journalist, i now doing this for 20 years, which is just exhausting saying that, really, but is that I? I just see the role... I think the best journalist that I've admired are bomb throwers, mm-hmm. not literally yes. people, uh, not literally critics, but yeah, are troublemakers. People,
0: well, they're talking about topics that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah. yeah.
2: Exactly. And that's
0: that's this podcast as well. Yeah, it's great. We're out of time, Anthony. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit
1: betterreading.com.au. Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.